You are Locked On NBA Draft, your daily podcast on the NBA Draft, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I've got a special guest joining me today, and I have asked him to pick two prospects to discuss today. One guy in the lottery range that he is a little bit lower on, and another guy that is more of a sleeper pick that he wants to make a case for. So we'll talk about those two guys coming up next. You are locked on the NBA draft. It is a Wednesday morning or Tuesday night if you're lucky. And as such, you're joined by me. It is your host today, Sam Ferris. You can follow me on Twitter at Draft Dummies. I'm there posting my thoughts, posting stats, posting a lot of clips as well, both of college prospects as well as the um, the rookies in the NBA. Um, before we get into it, though, I just want to say thank you for making this episode, the Locked On NBA Draft, your first listen today, and hopefully that is the case every day. We do have a title sponsor today. This episode is brought to you by Prize Picks. Check out prizepicks.com and use promo code NBA or go to your app store and download the app today. Prize Picks is daily fantasy made easy. But without further ado, let us welcome on the guest that we've got today. All right, so let's welcome in the guest that I am excited to have on today. It is Chuck from Chucking Darts. We have previously both made appearances on each other's shows, some very fun topics. And I like to have a lot of different members of you know, the draft Twitter community join me on my podcast just to get a variety of different discussions and opinions. And so when I asked Chuck to come on today, I asked him to pick one prospect that he believes he's higher on than the consensus and another prospect where, you know, at least he can see a very good argument for being lower on a prospect. So I'll, I'll let him say which two prospects he picked. Um, but first, Chuck, thank you so much for taking the time. I very much appreciate it. And how's it going for you this afternoon? Oh, thank you so much, Sam. Uh, pleasure's all mine. It is going well. Any time that I get to uh, talk basketball, particularly with the draft, with a gentleman such as yourself is a good day. And uh, yeah, it's been a while since either one of us has made an appearance on the, you know, each other's respective shows. But every time that we do, we tend to uh, both have a great discussion <laughs> and uh, really find some meat on the bone. And I know we're up against it time-wise <laughs> a little bit today. So hopefully I'll rein myself in. That's, that's my goal. <laughs> we, do, we do tend to pontificate. It's always fun topics that we end up on. Uh, before we get any further, though, I want to say... Chuck has his own podcast. I think I mentioned it at the top, but uh, if you haven't listened to it yet, listen to the Chucking Darts podcast, and you can also follow Chuck at the same handle, at Chucking Darts on Twitter. Um, so without further ado, we want to spend our time here talking hoops. So Chuck, um, first, let us start with the positive. So why don't you reveal the prospect that you wanted to discuss today that you believe you are higher on than the consensus. Okay. Uh, in this year's draft class that can, you know, that can apply to a lot of people because I think the, 
the narrative on the draft is that it opens up, you know, substantially. And yeah. depending on who you ask that it can open up as early as like pick seven or, you know, other people think it opens up at pick like 12. Um, and then you can go in a bunch of different directions. The prospect that I think I am higher on than uh, most is uh, Jake LaRavia at Wake Forest. Uh, LaRavia is a forward. Yeah, he's a forward. He's uh, around 6'8", 6'9", but he plays a lot like a guard. Um, He is a a shoot, pass, uh, drive, guard wing. And is really one of the two reasons that Wake Forest is really making noise this year and is going to be a tournament team. Uh, the other is Alondis Williams. He gets a bit more publicity, I think, because Alondis is more that traditional, strongly built, um, you know, scoring and distributing guard that puts up, a, you know, a slightly gaudier stat lines. But Laravia is really... I don't want to say the only reason because, you know, Alondis is a big one, but Laravia and Alondis are the duo that powers that team. And they are probably, you know, the second or third best team in the ACC this year. And Laravia for, you know, raw stats is averaging 15 and a half points, six boards, three and a half assists, uh, one and a half steals, nearly a block a game on 61% shooting from the field. Uh, 35% from three and 74% from the line. So just in those percentages alone, you get a sense for how efficient he is. Uh, But he's a really interesting player and he is a transfer from Indiana state. So from mid-major to high major Um, and like Alondis, you know, he actually arguably had a higher profile than Alondis did because Alondis was like a bench warmer in Oklahoma, but this Wake Forest team has come out of nowhere. And so that's why I think, that is the main reason why people aren't quite as high on uh, LaRavia yet, because they're surprised by the team, number one, and he has a, a teammate that has gotten more publicity, number two. But he's a very interesting guy. Yeah, you did a perfect job hitting on the high level kind of background and then some of the raw numbers with him. And I had watched some of his film. I think I'd watched a game or two, and I've watched a few Wake Forest games live as well. Uh, But, you know, when you mentioned that you wanted to talk about him, I went back and watched a little more film and looked more into the statistical profile. And let's just be frank that the statistical profile is like, it's really, really good. Um, We we have time (laughs) to get into some of it. But the first thing that stood out to me, because when you see him, frankly, he doesn't like necessarily look the part. He's a white kid with a headband. Uh, And so you don't (laughs) expect like the the athleticism or the pop you know you kind of envision just you know judging the book by its cover but then you get into the film and then you get into the numbers the stock rates jumped out at me where over his career a 3.6 percent block rate 2.4 percent steal rate those are two checkpoints for me that he hits um that are very important i've talked about this before it's kind of well known but one of the easiest ways that you can um you can eliminate guys in terms of looking at them through the lens of NBA prospects is that steal and block rate, good indicator of um, just athleticism and activity rate. And so that was good for me to see. But the question that I wanted to pose to you, because I think you said he's a forward-ish, but he's got guard skills. So taking that question to the next step, 
what role would you see him potentially playing in the NBA? You know, let's say if he does become a rotation player, you know, both like in terms of what would be kind of the source of his offense and just what role might he play for an NBA team? Great question. Uh, that's what that's this that this is the question that makes Jake Laravia interesting. And it's yeah. it's the question um, that, you know, its answer is why I'm higher on him, I think, than consensus is. So in the NBA, uh, you have, you know, high usage offensive engines who, you know, really power their team night after night. I don't need to rattle off a list of names. If you're listening to this podcast, you know, you know the players that I mean. Um, you know, the all-star caliber players. Once you get past those on any given team, take, for example, like uh, the Boston Celtics have Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum. Once you get past that, um, what you want to surround those players with are, you know, connector pieces, you know, guys who can shoot, dribble, and pass, do so efficiently, sort of keep the engine or I should say, keep the machine running without bogging down the efficiency of, you know, the, a team's offense and to, you know, provide some defensive value. Now that sounds rather obvious, but, you know, in the draft, it, it, it never hurts to restate you know, obvious things that are true. Yeah. It's hard enough to find stuff that, you know, I believe on a week to week basis with the draft. So I think normally players look when I say this kid is six foot eight, you know, six foot eight, six foot nine. There is a set of maybe skills that um, maybe certain people want to associate with someone that size. You know, maybe they want that person to, uh, you know, be this athletic marvel who, you know, can really, you know, finish alley-oops and guard the other team's best player and, uh, or maybe knock down a bunch of threes, be that classic D and three player. And that's what they think a person of that size should really be as a supporting piece. Um, I don't really feel that way. I think that essentially where a team can get efficient offensive players, they should take them. And the only really barrier to that is height. If someone is a very efficient offensive player, um, who's really impacting winning at the college level, but they're six foot one or they're six feet tall, then you can obviously understand how the NBA is going to be a very tough transition for them um, just because that's how it goes. Mm-hmm. Laravia is six, eight, six, nine, and his efficiency is just, it's insane. I mean, this is a guy who we're now, I don't know, eight games into the ACC season or thereabouts, maybe more. Um, he's shooting 70% on twos. Like you just, that type of production is just production. You, you just don't see. And in his game, um, what sticks out most to me about him, uh, is how he reads the game. You know, he has excellent touch as that percentage indicates, but, uh, he just has a great sense for how, uh, how possessions unfold, how to relocate, what connecting passes to hit, when to hit skip passes to the opposite end, when to look down low, how the defense is rotating, and when his teammates are going to be open. And he knows that he has Alondis, and Alondis is another phenomenal finisher with great touch. 
And so their two-man game works really well uh, as well. You know, Wake is a very heavy transition team. At least that is sort of, they found their identity in becoming a transition team. And that suits LaRavia to a T because at 6'8", 6'9", he can rebound and start the break. And his hit-ahead passes are almost always the right decision. And they're always on point. And if he's on the receiving end, he can finish. He just he just knows what he's doing and he he can play fast. Now, like there are players in college basketball who can put up good stat lines, but they maybe are on an ISO heavy team or maybe they play, you know, in a post offense. You, know, you see a lot of offenses in the Big Ten are like that. And uh, it's really doesn't mimic the kind of offense they're going to play in at the NBA level. In, in the NBA, you expect to make decisions very quickly because everyone is so skilled and the, the game is just played in a, in a more sophisticated way. And so you want to try to identify prospects you think are going to stick who are going to be able to hang with the level of processing and uh, decision-making that the league requires. And LaRavia is going to be able to do that. And, um, you know, I mentioned his assist numbers, but to just... To have a positive assist to turnover ratio at six eight six nine like pops. I think a um, a player that is getting almost you know pretty consistent first round buzz is Harrison Ingram yeah. on Stanford, um, and he is a freshman and a much more heralded recruit. But the pitch to him superficially is kind of the same. He reads the game very very well. He's a very good canny passer. Um, and though he has athletic limitations and LaRavia has some athletic limitations too, that we can get to the thought is Ingram is six, eight and, uh, he's skilled and he has great feel for the game. And just generally, if you're big and you have the good passing feel for the game and you can score a little bit, then NBA teams should give you a chance. And, LaRavia is much the same way. And, you know, one of the main differences between those two guys, apart from age, is that LaRavia is actually an efficient scorer. In fact, a very efficient scorer, and Ingram is not. So if there if there's like a microcosm for why I think he's underrated, I would look at how differently uh, Harrison Ingram is ranked versus Jake LaRavia. And that that would tell you why I think that maybe people are not, maybe they're sleeping on LaRavia a little bit. No, yeah, you did a fantastic job explaining that, and hopefully that hits home with my listeners because a few, a couple of weeks ago on my podcast, I did an episode on Harrison Ingram and made the pitch for why I believe he should be a late lottery pick. He's a guy that I really like for a lot of the reasons you just said. I think you did a great job explaining it, and you know, there's talk about these connector pieces. Uh, the way I like to describe it is similar to how you said, where every team in the NBA has one or two guys that mostly have the ball. They're the initiators, the on-ball, the lead ball handler, whatever you want to call them. They're the ones mostly creating advantages for the rest of the team. And then the way I look at it is once those guys create advantages, then they pass to the guy after the advantage is created. That next guy can do one of two things. They can either finish off of the advantage or they can keep that advantage alive and keep that offense humming and, you know, move to that next sequence, right? 
And so mm -hmm. we talk about these connector guys who, uh, they, there might be certain holes in their game. They might not be primary guys, but they do have that ability to dribble and make good decisions, kind of keep that offense humming. Um, and so a lot of those guys that do have those skills tend to be smaller players, right? Tend to be guards, right. maybe wings, maybe smaller wings, but it's just rare that you find those guys that are six, seven or above. And that's the reason I like Harrison Ingram. And frankly, I think the next guy we'll talk about in this podcast has some of those similar qualities as well. And you yeah. make the great, great case with LaRavia. And you can also make even the case with LaRavia that a difference that he has with a lot of other connector type players or whatever you want to call them is yes, I do have in my notes that he's a, a plus ball handler for his size, but he can also shoot and he's six, nine. And so it's just not that often you find kind of that whole offensive package. And of course there are downsides. Of course there are worries that we have with him. I mean, most people don't even have him on their draft board. And in the in the final segment here, we got to get to another prospect that we're going to talk about. But in the final segment, we're going to come back to LaRavia, talk about uh, the way, what we need to see from him and, and how it might actually play out, whether we do think he can be drafted and just kind of where you have him compared to the, the, the consensus. Um, but let's move on now and talk about the next guy, which is Kendall Brown. So that will be coming up after this break. You've heard me talk about prize picks for months, but have you signed up yet? If you have not, now is the perfect time. For a limited time, prize picks has an exclusive no-brainer of an offer for all of our users. Users will get $50 free if a player in your first prize picks entry scores a single point but you must use code NBA. That's right. This is an exclusive offer to locked on fans only who use code NBA. Price Picks has the best NBA DFS prop game on the market. They offer any prop you can think of from points, assists, rebounds, threes made, etc. You can pick two to five players and an over under on their projections, and you can win up to 10 times on any entry. And it is just you versus the projected numbers. So go to prizepicks.com or go to your app store and download the app. All users that deposit and use promo code NBA will get that $50 free. Again, PrizePix is daily fantasy made easy. All right, so Kendall Brown, he is a guy... And I think this is a lot of fun. If you listened to my show last week, I had C.T. Fazio. We talked about guys uh, because at this point, the top five or six in this class, most everyone has that similar consensus top type tier at the top. So we talked about a few candidates of guys that could go after that. And CT, one guy that he liked and wanted to discuss was Kendall Brown. But I think this will be fun to get kind of uh, maybe a different take um, where, Chuck, I don't know if you're necessarily much lower than the consensus, but you did talk about having a certain viewpoint or at least an argument for being lower. So why don't you kind of lead me in here? What would you say is the argument for having uh, him lower than the consensus? Uh, the argument has to do with um, his aggressiveness on offense. And I'm not stating anything that is um, like, you know, that is earth shattering here. You know, it's, 
when you watch Baylor, you know, they're a top five team. They were the number one team in the country for, I think, a month. Um, and they've started losing games actually after their other, you know, freshman sort of lotto levelish prospect, Jeremy Sohan, started missing games with injury. But Kendall Brown is 18 years old. He's a young freshman. And um, on that team, you know, defending national champs, even though they've had a lot of turnover, he is accepting a, a smaller uh, offensive role. And they have, you know, James Akinjo, who initiates a lot. They have uh, Matthew Mayer or Meyer. Uh, he initiates a lot. They've got Adam Flagler from last year's team. Um, he shoots a lot. And Brown just, he like to put it bluntly, he just doesn't shoot the ball a lot. Now, when he does, it's usually uh, to finish plays around the rim. And he is exceptional at that. He is probably, you know, the best wing in the country at finishing plays around the rim because he's such an explosive athlete. And like Jake LaRavia, um, he has a very good feel for the game. Like, I, I can't really quibble with his skill set or his passing or anything like that. He can get into the lane very easily because of his athletic gifts. And once he gets into the lane... Uh, usually he has forced help and he knows where to pass the ball. And it's not always like simple, strong side reads either. You know, he can make cross court skips and wraparounds under the hoop back out to the perimeter. Like he's very good. He processes the game very quickly. And again, if you just go by size and athleticism and feel that sort of intersection, then he should go in the top 10, you know, and, my only concern is that um, to return that kind of value, a you know, top 10 pick in the draft, that means that you are, you know, a very, a, a solid NBA starter or better, you know, over the course of your career. <clears throat> in order to do that, there are certain thresholds that you need to cross. And offensively, that threshold has, you know, it means that you are, aggressive enough so that defenses don't ignore you and don't sag off of you. I am not, you know, super concerned about Kendall Brown, you know, finding an offensive role in the NBA because he's a very intelligent cutter and he, you know, he's going to be able to finish plays and he's going to have guards in the NBA that um, are better than what he's got at Baylor. who are going to be looking for him knowing that, you know, I can throw this guy an alley-oop. He's going to be just fine. Um, but my concern, like where I want to have the discussion, Sam, is mm -hmm. if this guy, you know, it is not new for him to have sort of a smaller offensive role than maybe his talent suggests. I believe that was the case before he got to Baylor as well. Mm -hmm. And when he gets into the lane, not only does he look to pass, but he doesn't really even think about shooting. I don't know how many shots he's taken off the dribble this year at all, but it's not many. So I just want to say if he ends up as an NBA player averaging between 10 and 12 points per game, like let's just say that. I think he has the talent to average more than that. But if that's all he does, then how valuable a player can 
he possibly become? What is the analog for a super low usage NBA forward that we can look to and say, this guy is, you know, not a very willing shooter. He is um, a very low usage offensive player, but he is a no doubt starting NBA forward who's provided his team a lot of value. About him. No. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are certainly real points. Um, I think kind of the main number that you're pointing at is the 17.5% usage. But like you said, in seven conference games, that dips all the way down to 14%. Like mm-hmm. that, that is like super, super low. And and sure, uh, we understand the context. It was the same at Sunrise Christian kind of before he got to college, but now playing for a Baylor team, like he's playing a role for a championship contender. So the question is, as an evaluator, you understand his context and you have to project, you have to analyze, you have to kind of guess like, yeah, he's not doing much more now, but can he eventually do more? Or could he do more now if you were playing like if you stuck him in Harrison Ingram's spot on Stanford, you know, like what would that exactly look like? Those are, yeah, those are cer- certainly real questions. Like he's going to have to do more offensively at the NBA level than finish layups and dunks. And, you know, the main reason that I'm higher on him, or I don't think I'm necessarily much higher than the consensus. I have him in like the eight to 10 range. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but just again, like getting back to the similar point, it's just rare that you find a plus 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 athlete at 6'8 that can dribble the ball and has like real feel. And so that's in the end, that's what I'm betting on. Like he doesn't fall quite into the feel range of like a Scotty Barnes or uh, maybe, I don't know, I think it's similar to like Jalen Johnson, but he, he yeah. certainly didn't have the usage even those guys did have as, as freshmen in college. And so, yeah, I, I like I don't think he quite measures up to that. But again, it's just the, that threshold and those skills, when you put them in a package, it's very rare to find. And I don't think he's going to be as good as Sean Marion, but it, like that role where use that level of athleticism you know you can put him on one of the better perimeter players he's got that plus feel that passing and to me the thing that you need to have as a connector that i just think is undervalued in terms of just scouting in general is ball handling ability and Mm. it's hard because i do think ball handling ability tends to be one of the hardest things to scout one because oftentimes guys in college just don't really end up in situations where they can show it that often or like i guess the better way to say it is ball handling tends to be kind of like affected more by context than other stuff both by just the system them being like the fifth option like this and also just the lack of spacing right in college that you'll see for a lot of these teams so i think Mm -hmm. it is hard to scout and that's what makes it complicated but to me i think one of the things that I believe is if you can find like a four and especially a five that can dribble. And again, it's very hard. It's so rare to find guys uh, that 
are legitimate NBA athletes and have size that can also dribble well. And another thing I'll add is I don't think dribbling is something you can necessarily improve that much. Like shooting, for example, something you can uh, get a lot of repetition and improve. I think you can go up like a level or two in ball handling, but there just aren't guys that go from like non-ball handlers to solid ball handling ability. Anyway, that was a bit of a rabbit hole, but that's kind of my pitch with him of why I just can't be too low regardless of the production because that package of skills is just valuable and you just don't find it that often. Yeah, okay. So no, and first of all, I don't think that's, I mean, if that is a rabbit hole, I think I'm I'm glad that we're <laughs> in this rabbit hole because yeah. I wanted, this is what I wanted to to get to with yeah. him. Um, in the, in the NBA, you know, every player, no matter, I don't care if you're Evan Mobley or in Cade Cunningham, or you're an undrafted free agent, Mm -hmm. if you end up being a very good NBA player and having a productive career, it means that you improve a lot over the course of your NBA playing career. And Mm -hmm. I'm not a a player development, like guru by any stretch, but I intuitively the best way to improve in the NBA is to uh, play a lot. Number one, like appear in a lot of NBA games and try lots of different things. And you have to be sort of unafraid to fail and find the limits of your skills in that environment. And you need to be good enough to have those reps basically given to you by a team that is likely trying to win. You know, unless you end up in a sort of an OKC or an outright tanking situation, you got to be sort of trying this stuff and getting better at it, you know, on teams that are trying to win extremely competitive NBA games. And it mm-hmm. is, I think that um, just for my money, that is something that uh, it's, it, it is always important to remember when you do draft evaluation, because it's easy to look at these players in a vacuum and say, you know, this guy's skill is here right now and he's this age and he's a freshman. So that means by the time he's 26, it will have advanced this far because I like A, B, C, and D about his game. But the truth is where they go affects how much opportunity they're going to get. And in their opportunity, if they are fit into a very precise role, then their skills may not coalesce in the way that we assume that they will. In Kendall's case, Comparing him to Scotty, um, for example, mm-hmm. Scotty was not a like really talented shooter, or had the rep as a really talented shooter going into Florida State, but his mindset and his aggression were always that he believed that he could get a bucket, no matter like some weird way. And he was, you know unafraid to shoot threes. And I don't like using the word afraid, but he was very willing to shoot threes. Um, And that's what sticks out to me about Kendall is that he is just so content for lack of a better word to play a role on this Baylor team where he, you know, he's probably in terms of, in terms of talent right now, in terms of helping Baylor win games right now, probably the most talented or or second most talented player on that team. But the way he operates in their offense is as a fifth starter. And Mm -hmm. that just does not compute to me. You know, James Akinjo and Matthew Meyer are not like these amazing college players that Kendall Brown needs to be deferring to. 
And he's an 18 year old kid and I completely understand it. And he's very unselfish. And I think he should be commended for um, how committed he is to doing whatever the team asks of him. But the fact is you got to walk this tightrope in the NBA where, you know, you're playing with the best players in the world. So for you to carve out a valuable, a really valuable role, you've got to, you've got to carve it out. You've got to, you've got to slice through, you know, that jungle and, and make your own way. And if he's content with being like a fifth starter right now and not doing things game to game to try to push the envelope a little bit, I don't know that the NBA is going to be much more of a permissive environment for that. In fact, when you were on uh, my podcast this past summer, Sam, Mm -hmm. we were ranking uh, the last three drafts worth of NBA players, 2020, 2019, 2020, 2021. And we had this discussion about Patrick Williams and you brought this up. You said, because I was very, and still am, very high on Patrick Williams. And you said, you know, there's just a certain thing about, you know, a player's mindset and how aggressive they're going to be um, and Mm -hmm. how, uh, you know, how do they think they're the best player on the court when they step on the court? Are they going to uh, really seek out opportunities to push their limits, you know, on the floor? And, you know, you, you thought that Williams maybe was a little bit more reticent, a little bit more reluctant, and that affected your ranking of him. And that's Brown just seems to be an extreme version of that where, you know, it's true that he can ball handle a little bit right now. And yeah. when he shoots these open threes where the defense sags off of him, I don't think his form looks terrible. I think it looks fine. But how many pick and rolls is he going to end up running in the NBA where he gets to really work on his ball handling? How many times is he going to attack from the wing in ISO on his man where he is going to the basket to finish? And, you know, really work on his uh, his layup package. How many times is he going to, like, make himself shoot threes off the dribble, even though they're likely to not go in, you know, right away because it's a new skill and he's trying to learn it in the best league in the world? These are my concerns with Brown. As far as, like, looking at the skill package and the age, I agree he should be a top 10 pick. And I'll probably end up with him, like, right around 10th because I just don't think that, like he's not very replicable in this draft class about all that he brings to the table, but um, it's, it would be, it would surprise me to see him go from being this deferential in college to being this very aggressive player in the NBA who can, you know, in time average 15 plus points a game, you know, scheming can account for some of it, and maybe that's part of it with Baylor because they don't run a ton of set plays and they don't run anything for him, even though they should yeah. run more. Um, but it it can't be all of it. At some point, you need a player to really say, I'm going to get mine. And his teammate, Sohan, that I mentioned, I see that more with him. You know, it's, it's flashes here and there. But when Sohan gets the chance, he'll take someone down on the block and, you know, try to hit a fadeaway or something over them, yeah. or he'll take people off the dribble and drive in the lane and try to finish through con through contact, um, you know, taking it himself. He'll take contested threes. 
you know, and, and it's not like he's the most aggressive guy in the world either. It's just a striking contrast compared to Kendall. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what I'm looking at with him. I won't say that I'm like low on Kendall. I'm just saying it's an interesting test case for someone at this far end of the spectrum in terms of the role they're willing to accept. No, those are, that's certainly a very valued argument. And I got to say it's valid because you used my own quotes from a previous podcast against no, me. I, I was coming for you. <laughs> I know. I was for you. No, but I, I do want to respond to this. And I think it's an interesting conversation to continue. So I'm going to answer your question coming up, but we got to get to a break first. Um, but yeah, let's continue this coming up next. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever. And guess what? It is the new year. It's 2022. It's January. So that means a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. If you do and yours is about getting fit or eating healthier, make sure to go ahead and include Built Bars in that plan to make it easier to stick to your resolution because they taste so good. They're 100% covered in real chocolate but they also contain 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar and net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. Compare that to a candy bar, which usually has over 240 calories, 30 grams of sugar, and dozens of net carbs. So here's an idea. If you're going to make that New Year's resolution, go ahead and include Built Bars in it. There are so many flavors to choose from. Peanut butter brownie, raspberry, cookies and cream, salted caramel, mint brownie, and many more. Again, Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar on the market. All right, so yeah, let's get back into that same conversation. It's worth going a little bit further down this um, because as you were posing that question and going through your argument, I had a couple different thoughts that I'm kind of going through in my mind. And I've got a few other like guys I could compare this with that I might get to here. But first to answer your question, I, I used, yeah, I like to use the word just assertiveness or the willingness to try stuff. And I like to see that from prospects, but especially I like to see that from prospects that I think are gonna be certainly the guys that are gonna be primary ball handlers and like even secondary guys. And so that was kind of more why I use that with like Patrick Williams, for example, because what, he was drafted fourth, right? And so mm-hmm. the point there was more like, if he's going to really return value of number four overall, he's going to have to be like it, a second option offensively, right? But if if you draft Patrick Williams, or in this case, Kendall Brown, like 10th or 12th or whatever, and he and you're just drafting them to be a very good defensive player and maybe your fourth option offensively, but a guy that can kind of help your offense run smoothly, but not really a guy that you even really expect in terms of the value that that you're getting at that point in the draft. You're not really necessarily expecting him to really push the envelope and really become that much more offensively, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of baking some of that, what you're saying into my projection, because if I were expecting more self-creation, just more pushing of the envelope, more ball handling in the half court, like then, yeah, I could see taking him even higher based on all the other skills he has. But, you know, my first point is I'm not really necessarily expecting that from like, especially to be frank, I do think outside of a few of the top guys, I do think 
this draft, like the lottery is a little bit weaker than most. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah I'd agree. Just in terms yeah. of like the value you're getting, it's a little different. And like comparing a primary or secondary guy that you're expecting to be the first or second option compared to more of a guy like Kendall Brown, where like, I agree, I think he'll probably be like, if we're talking average outcome for him, I think it's like the fourth best offensive player. Yeah, he can help your offense run smoothly by keeping advantages alive, making the right decision, finishing at the rim and off of advantages created by others. But I don't really expect him to ever run pick and roll or like ISO on the wing, to be honest. But I wanted to transition this into uh, two other rookies right now where I think it's kind of similar examples um, because we talked about Franz Wagner already, right? So yeah, my yeah. question is like, if he as a freshman were on this same Baylor team, like wouldn't it look pretty similar to what Kendall Brown is doing? And we got to see two years of him at Michigan. And of course he improved from his freshman to his sophomore year. And he, he was projected to go in the same range and did go in, you know, the, the mid to late lottery. And the thing is normally like late lottery, you wouldn't expect a guy like that to end up on a team that allows him to push the envelope. But that, and he ended up going to kind of a unique circumstance where Orlando had two picks and Orlando's like maybe the worst team in the NBA right now. And so he mm. has had a ton of opportunity to handle the ball, push the envelope, because my, you know, to your point, my concern with him was the same where I just, I was worried because I didn't see a ton of assertiveness. I didn't see the willingness to get up a lot of shots. I didn't see him push the envelope. And like, yeah, so I was, my point was the same with him where if I'm getting him 10th, 12th, 14th, like I love the defense with Franz. I love the passing. I love the, like the ball handling, but not as, a top two guy in an offense. So it's kind of similar case in a way to Kendall Brown. And he ended up in Orlando where now he he's averaging a ton of points. Cole Anthony was hurt. Like he's been like their primary focus at times. And now we've seen him do way more than we expected. Now could Kendall Brown do that? Who knows? Like, honestly, probably not at this point. And then mm -hmm. the guy I want to contrast that real quick, and then I'll pass it back to you is Jonathan Kaminga, where we saw him, for G League Ignite, I was probably too low on him because all we saw him do was kind of loaf around a lot, to be honest, and take a lot of tough mid-range jump shots. And now he's shoehorned into a specific role. So kind of like the inverse of these two guys where the Warriors are a potential championship contender. They play him as like a defensive stopper and play finisher where Steph has all the gravity and Kaminga is just getting free runs at the rim to use his athleticism. So those are mm -hmm. two kind of like almost inverse um, examples that we've seen recently. Um, so uh, what are your thoughts here? I kind of want to push it back to you based on what I said there. Yeah, I love that you brought those two guys up. So for Franz, uh, first of all, I made the same mistake in evaluating him where yeah. I, I docked him for a perceived lack of assertiveness. And I've said this before on my podcast, but like, I should not have like questioned the assertiveness of Mo Wagner's younger brother. Just <laughs> no, don't question a Wagner in terms of whether or not <laughs> yeah. they have the self-confidence to push it. But so like as a freshman, um, Franz got up, I think maybe eight or nine threes per 100 possessions, which is like a very solid number, especially yeah. for a forward. Like that wouldn't, doesn't stick out at all as being low. 
And then it went down a little bit as a sophomore, but he would still like run pick and rolls and yeah, that's true. get to the hoop and finish. I mean, in the NCAA tournament, I think in the Sweet 16, they played Florida State and he went at Scotty Barnes, like yeah. drove at him, finished over him, like just was and had showed comfort handling the ball. Um, so I would say that he shows a lot more assertiveness than Kendall Brown is showing now. And I think for that, just that three point per 100 number, I think Kendall's at like two, yeah, two to three, which is yeah. just, it's, he's only know, taken like, 15 it's, all season. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's as if he's the center. Um, yeah. Kuminga, I agree that his, uh, you know, his G league tape was plenty, you know, had plenty of warts on it. But aggressiveness was not one of those warts. If anything, he was no, too aggressive. It, in yeah, exactly. For sure. Because he would, you know, he would drive over and over and over again and try to initiate contact. And Kaming is a big, strong kid. But he would turn the ball over a lot because his ball handling wasn't really up to snuff. And I think the Warriors have very smartly identified that um, he has some vision for a guy his size. But because he's so strong... At 6'8", they can basically play him as a big in certain lineups, and he can rebound with guys who are bigger than him. And he can be a real mismatch on, say, dribble handoffs where he it's a keeper and he turns around and gets to the rim and he's you know not afraid to finish, not afraid to draw contact, go to the line. Uh, if he gets a mismatch in the post, he's not afraid to take advantage of that, and he has moves that he has already shown in the NBA this year. Mm-hmm. That It's just that sort of stuff wherever Kendall goes that concerns me. If mm-hmm. he goes to an equivalent of an Orlando Magic situation where you know they get some injuries and all of a sudden some usage opens up, what experience is he going to lean on running pick and roll or attacking an ISO or initiating offense that will even justify him getting the chance? You know, and, and maybe that stuff exists and it's just stuff that I'm not privy to and I hope that's the case, but that's that's the question. And if he goes to a contender where they look at him and they say, all right, what does this guy do well on offense? What can we have him do? What tape will they have to lean on besides him finishing plays? And if that's what he does, then that's fine. But he's I don't think that he's going to play center you know, in spot minutes the way the Kuminga does, because I don't think he's quite as, you know, thickly built. I don't think he's quite as strong. And I think that yeah. he does best guarding guys his size and smaller. Um, and he's very good at that. Like, he'll be a real asset in doing that. But that usually means that on offense, there's going to be another big on the floor, which means that he's going to be in the corner. I mean, that's where they're going to put him. Yeah. So then you have him again in this sort of fifth or fourth, option role and though I think he can be good and though I think that he's going to be in the NBA a long time I just if you look at fourth and fifth options across the NBA what you find and this is like in starting units what you find more often than not are guys who were like big time options in college who just have had to scale their play down rather than try to add new things and scale it up. I brought up the Boston Celtics earlier, like Grant Williams has sort of emerged as a fifth starter for them. Mm-hmm. And his, his uh, box score numbers are don't fly off the page. He might get 
a handful of rebounds, maybe a couple defensive stats um, because he's a very smart player, but he's a connector and a fifth starter and a low usage guy for them. Uh, shoots a lot of corner threes. He was two time SEC player of the year, yeah. you know, for Tennessee. It's just, and I mean, we could pick just about any team, um, you know, the Toronto Raptors, their fifth starter, it, you know, if it's not Scotty Barnes is probably like Gary Trent Jr., Mm-hmm. who was yeah. a role player at Duke, but who shot a ton of threes at over 40%. And now in the NBA, his role as a fifth starter is to shoot tons and tons and tons of threes. Like NBA teams don't orient their offensive strategy around what best suits their fifth starter. In order to be a fifth starter, you just have to be able to fill in the gaps that a particular team has by virtue of its of its stars, of its guys that it's already investing in. So Brown is going to have to find a team that has that role for him and that role for him. If he doesn't push it, if he doesn't show more in pre-draft workouts, if there aren't other levels to his game, that path is already narrow. And I just don't think that many teams are going to bend over backwards, finding a starting position for a, a narrow sort of usage role. That, that's all. It's just competitive, man. It's just yeah. tough. No, certainly all very great points, and I agree with all of them. Um, we've only got a few minutes. We've got three minutes left, and I just want to quickly tie together the bow, what we started with on Jake LaRavia. So why don't you just really quickly just tell me where you kind of think you might end up with him on your board, and... Do you think there's a chance he does get drafted and just very quickly, like what will he need to prove if there is anything for him to get drafted? Yeah. um, I think there's a chance he gets drafted because um, the combination of size and skill tends to get people drafted. If you're six, eight and you're this efficient on offense and you can pass Mm -hmm. um, usually some team gives you a, a chance I think it'll probably be in the second round um, because I can't see like maybe if Wake Forest made like the elite eight, yeah. which would be a lot of fun for that team, but odds Could are certainly happen too. Yeah, I know. And I, like, that's a longer conversation I'd love to have, but like if, if that doesn't, if there's not some big narrative that puts him on the national radar, then um, I think that second round is probably where he will land. I right now I have him around 40, um, mm-hmm. but I could see putting him in the first round in this draft. And again, like you have to just do the draft math where you say, you know, between 20 and 30 of these guys are going to get second contracts. An even lower number are going to get a second contract from the team that drafts them. Yeah. So it's not really like saying a whole lot to say that I have this guy as a top 50 prospect because if a guy is 50th in a given year, it probably means he washes out of the NBA. Yeah. And I believe in LaRavia. Now I think the thing that he has to do most is uh, step up his offensive or pardon me, shoot more threes. That's what he needs to do because he is not averaging a lot of uh, attempted threes either. His, his overall usage and aggressiveness is fine. But that's the one area uh, that he looks to pass a little bit more. But in terms of like where he's at most recently, this weekend he played North Carolina and he they couldn't guard him at all. Yeah. And he 
put up 31, 10, 4, 3, and 1 on 13 shots. 31 points on 13 <laughs> shots. So that gives you a sense of like this guy draws fouls. He's a Mitch, he's a mismatch for guys his size because he can dribble around them and get them in the air and draw contact. Um, and his shot looks good. He's shooting 35% and it's a smooth looking stroke. He's just going to need to shoot more threes at the NBA level. That's going to be more a part of his diet. So I want to see him shoot a bit more, but Laravia is, I mean, his scoring is completely legit, man. Well, where do you have him? Like, what do you think of him? Yeah, I, I think I'd have him in the same range as you did. He's a guy I still need to watch more film on. Like I said, I had seen just a few games and kind of mm -hmm. dug deeper today in preparation for this podcast. And, you know, the profile and what you've discussed certainly has helped convince me that he can be an NBA prospect. You know, one of my like main beliefs I always talk about is you do just have to be a little bit beware of guys that weren't that don't really become an NBA prospect until after their second season in college. Usually, you know, like you said, guys that make it in the NBA tend to be really successful in college and tend to be successful in college before their third season. And then they just have to scale it back to fit in a role in the NBA. And so that, that kind of role, that rule or kind of thought with me of just beware of guys that aren't prospects until their junior season in college, that was something that I discussed a lot in terms of Davion Mitchell. But the difference is here, we're talking yeah. about a second round pick compared to a lottery pick. And so, yeah, like you can find guys that are successful three, four year players that were this productive. And I think he does have the skills to scale it back. What I need to see is, can he hang defensively at the NBA level? And just yeah, kind of how yeah. projectable I think that three-point shot is. The numbers, both the free throw percentage and the three-point percentage have been a little up and down throughout his three-year career. And so those will be kind of the things that I do monitor moving forward. But I'm certainly, especially after talking to you and digging into it with him, I'm certainly excited to continue to follow him throughout the remainder of this season. Excellent, man. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't touch on the defense, which is where his athletic limitations come in, but know. you know, at six, eight, if you can flip your hips, which he can struggle with, but like, if you know your responsibilities and you can stay in front a little bit, like Joe Ingles has been in the NBA a very long time and he probably has better hips than LaRavia, but it's, he, he did. He's really slowed down. So maybe like a later career Ingles. Yeah. <laughs> later sure. Ingles. Yeah. 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 No. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm sure we'll do it again. We were talking about before uh, we started recording. I think the last show we did together was our predictions for the all rookie team. So after the season, we might need a kind of postmortem to assess how we did and what guys we missed on because we were talking about the fact that we did miss on a bunch of guys there. No surprise, but as per usual, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you, Chuck. Real quick before you finish, anything that you want to plug to the listeners? Uh, sure. It's I mean, you did it at the, at the top, but it's the Chucking Darts NBA and Draft podcast. I'm at Chucking Darts on Twitter. Uh, anywhere you find your podcast, Chucking Darts is me. So uh, it's going to be more draft episodes, uh, sprinkling in some NBA. But as you get now that the calendar's turned, I, I tend to be more into the draft. But uh, thank you very much, man. A pleasure as always. 
Yep. Thank you, Chuck. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Thank you listeners for tuning in. Thank you for making this show your first listen today. And hopefully that's the case every day. Now, because you hopefully enjoyed our show on the Locked On NBA Draft channel, go ahead and make your second listen today, the Locked On Bets, which is your daily one-stop shop for all gambling needs. Again, Locked On Bets, hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. It is free and available on all platforms. Thank you.